0: Hey, it's great to be with you, uh, Grace Covenant Church. It really is. I, I, I'm so humbled and grateful that uh, Matt allows me uh, to preach ever so often. I like to bring in uh, the strange topics. I always like to say to Matt, I like, I, like to, I like to preach and then just leave it in your court to have to mop up when we're done. So, uh, I know that you're in a study of the Psalms right now. Is that correct? Yeah, we're not going to do that today. I'm going to preach about a fat man. True story. So uh, we'll get there in just a minute. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray and ask the Lord um, to open our ears. You know, I think there's something interesting that happens in a worship service. I think we sing to God. That's our way of talking to Him and speaking to Him about what we think about Him. And then we hear from God in the preaching of His Word. And And so a worship service on Sunday morning becomes dialogue of a sort. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord to give us ears to hear what He wants to say to us this morning. Our Father, thank You uh, that, we, that You have opened the door and, and welcomed us to come and to be in Your presence and to speak to You. And we have declared that You are powerful and that there is a wonderful name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we have testified that our hope is in You and, and that life is in You. And we've declared great truths of the spiritual life. And now, by the power of your Spirit, you want to speak truth into our hearts. And so, uh, my prayer, God, is that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive. There's a, that you have a fascinating way, God, of knowing where each of us are and then speaking a message to us in all of our diversity that hits right where it needs to hit. I pray that that happens this morning. And so, we commit this time to you, and we thank you for the opportunity and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Judges in your Old Testament. We're going to be studying a passage from Judges chapter 3. Uh, in 1991, uh, in the Balkan War, there were about 2,500 people that lost their lives to landmines in the country of Croatia. And from the start of that war to the end, over a course of about four years, there were 90,000 landmines that were scattered throughout the countryside of that country. The problem is that they had been placed, they had been buried without any sense of, of uh, mapping or regularity or knowledge about where all these landmines were, so that when the war was over, they had about 450 square miles in Croatia that were filled with landmines that were undetonated, they had no way of being able to find these landmines. So, they came up with a solution, honeybees. You see, researchers had spent millions of dollars studying honeybees and discovered that honeybees have a remarkable sense of smell. And so they collected large hives, large colonies of honeybees, and they began to train these honeybees. And the way that they train them is that they would lace the food source of the honeybee with a little bit of the chemical that's found in explosives. And they continued to do that day after day after day until it became clear that the honeybees would only go to food sources that had that particular chemical in it. And then they took the honeybees and they released them out into fields and the honeybees would go, and they would swarm around until they found a place where there was a landmine, and they would either hover, they would swarm over the top, or they would land on where the landmines were, so that the, so that the, the researchers, so that the military personnel could go, and they could dig up a landmine. They had used bomb-sniffing dogs for a while, but the dogs were too heavy. Bomb-sniffing honeybees, they, they weigh about a tenth of a gram. And so they were perfect for the job. And I want you to understand the principle of the honeybee today because it relates to the passage that we're going to look at. And that is that the honeybees were successful not just because of what they could do, but also because of what they wouldn't do. It was not just their abilities, but it was, in fact, their inabilities that God used for His purposes. And I'll have to tell you, in the world we live, life doesn't always look that way. When you and I think of leaders, when we think of people that are really changing the world, Christians that are making an impact in ministry, we typically think about uh, influential people that are uh, they're good-looking people, They are passionate people. They are creative people. They're organized people. They're great speakers. They're they're able to draw a cloud. They they network with people left and right. They are visionary and courageous, and they're smart, and they're strong, and all of these kind of things. Those are the people that we we think God uses mostly. Those people tend to end up on staffs at churches. In fact, I said to my church, I've I've, I've tongue-in-cheek said to my church that I get paid for being good. And the rest of you are just good for nothing. And that's the way I think a lot of times in churches we feel, that there are those people that are elevated to this high position of being significant, and then there's just the rest of everybody else. In fact, I'll tell you, we're we're looking for some key staff people on our church. And I assure you that when I interview and spend time with those men or women for this position or that position, I'm going to be looking for people that have high competency. I want to know what they can do. But the truth is, when God selects a person, He doesn't always use those criteria. You see, what we find in the Bible is that when God selects a person, He doesn't always choose somebody based on what they can do, but sometimes He chooses people based on their incapacity, on their liability, which is great news for every single person in the church today, that you're not… God doesn't choose you because you qualify. He often qualifies you simply because He He chose you, and I want to show you a story in Judges chapter chapter 3. To understand the story, we have to understand a little bit of the cycle that goes through the book of Judges. There's a repeating uh, rhythm that rolls through the book of Judges. That rhythm has four parts. It begins with disobedience. God's people, the nation of Israel, find themselves in idolatry or adultery or injustice or something, and because of their disobedience and their neglect of the law of God, uh, God then defeats them. He punishes or disciplines them, and He does that by sending in a foreign king to come and subject God's people to slavery. Okay? So, there was disobedience and then defeat. Along the way, after a couple of months or a couple of years, the people of God cry out in despair. They cry, Uncle, Lord, help us. They cry out in despair, and God, hearing the cries of His people, He delivers them. He often raises up a warrior in their midst, a man or a woman that comes to their defense, somebody that we would call a judge, not a person that sits on the bench, but a military commander that comes and rallies God's people to victory. And so the people of God now, Israel's free. What happens when you discover freedom? Well, they fell back into disobedience, and disobedience uh, led to defeat. Defeat led to despair, and despair then uh, eventually brought them deliverance, and the cycle just continues over and over again in the book of Judges. That's, That's the book of Judges. So, we find that cycle gaining momentum in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to the Word of God. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's disobedience. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So, there is the defeat people of God have stepped away from the stuff of God, and so God raises up this Moabite king named Eglon, and Eglon comes, and he, uh, Eglon who is a Moabite, gathers the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Meshechites, and all of these people all kind of gather together, and they overtake the city of Jericho, also known as the city of Palms, and they overtake the city, and the people of God are now subject to King Eglon, and the Moabite armies. In fact, this went on for 18 years, the people of God were oppressed. But then we read in verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. There's despair, right? They're crying out to God. They cry out to the Lord, and He gave them a deliverer. Here comes deliverance. A man by the name of Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. Okay, oh, so, so, God comes and He calls a man by the name of Ehud, and there are two things that we know about Ehud. The first thing that we know about Ehud is that he is a Benjamite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's not surprising because the city of Jericho that had been taken over by Eglon was in Benjamite territory, so it's not surprising that God would raise up a Benjamite from that region to go in and to take care of business and rescue the Israelites. What's also interesting is that the word Benjamite or Benjamin in Hebrew can literally be translated son of the right hand, or what we might call lucky. And so Ehud was chosen out of the tribe son of the right hand, which is rather ironic because the second thing we know about Ehud is what? He's a left-handed guy. (laughs) He's he's a left-handed man chosen out of the tribe sons of the right hand. Now, some people think about Ehud that he may have been ambidextrous, right? He could fight, he could bat, either right handed or left handed. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, we get a little bit of a hint of this. Warriors came to help David. This is King David in the Old Testament. Warriors came to help David when he was running from Saul. And they were armed with bows, and they were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right handed. Or left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? It seemed that the tribe of Benjamin were raising up warriors that could fight with their left hand or their right hand. It's rather interesting. But the best interpretation of he was a left-handed man is not that Ehud was ambidextrous. Listen carefully. Most theologians believe that the best understanding of that text is that he was handicapped or deficient in regards to his right hand. I don't want you to miss this. Ehud had a disability. He was a southpaw. And to be frank, he is not the guy that you and I would have chosen to go defeat a foreign king. You say, well, why is that? Because most military people were right-handed. And a right-handed man would have strapped the sword to his left thigh so that he could reach over and pull out that sword. And if he fought with his right hand, he'd hold his shield with his left hand. And in an army where most people were right-handed, to be left-handed would put your shield on the other side and your sword in this hand, and it would leave you exposed to an attacker on the outside. So, to be honest with you, you and I would not have chosen Ehud if we lined up all of the soldiers and were choosing a hero to go in and to take out King Eglon. We would not have chosen Ehud. And yet God chose a left-handed man to be the hero of the story. I want you to listen to the rest of the text. It's a great story. The Israelites sent Ehud with tribute, that is a tax- or uh, a payoff or a bribe. They sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, not not too long, something that you could easily hide, and he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it, and at the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back, and he came to the king, and he said this, "Uh, I have a secret message for you, O king. Oh, yeah, he sure does. The king says, quiet, and all of his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the summer palace, and he said, I have a message from God. God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Yes, this is in the Bible. And even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back, and Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. I love scripture. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked him. Isn't this a great story? You didn't know you were going to come to church and hear a story about a fat man with a belly that closes over a sword. Let me tell you why I love this story. I love this story, first of all, because it shows victory God's people victorious. I love this story, a second reason, because it shows vulnerability. It's what we call the vulnerability of Bible, that if I were writing the Bible about spiritual stories and heroes, I probably wouldn't have included the one of the fat man here. This is one of those stories that convinces us the Bible must be true because it just records life as it really happened. But the main reason I love this story is because it shows that God is using a person that you and I would have never expected we would have never have guessed that this is the man that God would call and that this is the man that God would employ for his purposes. There's a couple of principles I want you to take home from the story of Ehud. The first principle is that left-handers are never left out of God's, God's purposes. Left-handers are never left out of God's plan. When you look at the story of Ehud, let's, let's just agree he comes from a whole line of quote left-handed people okay the kinds of people you would have never have expected for god to use take moses right when god calls moses in the midian desert and says i'm going to send you back you're going to be the spokesperson For toward Pharaoh to set my people free, Moses went, I don't speak very good, I'm a stutter, I'm not the guy that's the speaker. You need to choose somebody else. Or when God chose David, all right, David, who wrote most of the Psalms that you're studying here uh, this summer, when God chose David, David was a kid, he was a shepherd boy. In fact, he was so much not the guy you and I would choose that when God sent Samuel to go into Jesse's house, God says, you be careful, Samuel, because you're going to look at the outward appearance, and if you just look at the outward appearance, there's going to be a guy that you're going to find. He's not going to be the guy that you, should choo- that you would choose outwardly, but I look on the inward parts of a person, and so you let me lead you to the person that I'm going to choose. In fact, David was such an unlikely hero, even his own daddy didn't bring him in from the pasture, right? Right? His dad didn't even have high aspirations for his son. Or how about Mary Magdalene? Here is a woman of ill repute. She is a person on the margins, exactly the kind of pe- person that holy people, rabbis like Jesus, should never be around, and yet Mary Magdalene becomes the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, she is a major player in the New Testament. Or how about Peter? Peter? And James and John, you say, Pastor, those guys are stalwarts. They are, they're, they're heroes of the faith, Peter, James, and John. They didn't start that way. I mean, when Jesus called these men off the boats and said, Come follow me, and then he turned over and he hand over all the reins of ministry, by the way, I would have never done that. I would have never handed off the ministry that I'd grown to these guys, but Jesus did. And what we know about Peter, James, and John, Acts chapter 4, you can look it up. It says the crowds looked at them, kind of scratched their heads, and they thought, these fellows are just unschooled, ordinary fishermen, but they're being used by God. You see, the whole Bible is filled with absolutely unqualified people, at least from the human perspective. And to, be tr- and to be frank about it, that's exactly the kinds of people that God wants to use today. He wants to use people that in their own minds, they go, I, would, I don't think God would ever use me. Because, think about it for just a minute. Every one of us have a because I could never serve there. I would never go on a mission trip because I'm, I'm just, listen, I don't know my my Bible. I could never serve in a ministry here. I'm just, I just don't have any experience. I would never tell my story in our home group because I have just be loving all over myself. I can't tell my story. I'm not as eloquent as Pastor Matt or somebody. I'm just not that good. I'm not that creative. I'm, I'm just not that sharp. I'm not that spontaneous. I'm not that secure. I've got this history that's behind me that just totally disqualifies me from this thing or that thing. So many excuses, and I wonder. I just wonder if Ehud had some. When God says, hey, come here. I got something. I got something I want you to do. If Ehud went, oh, I mean, if you look at that, I I am not your guy. You know why God chooses to use people like Ehud and Moses and Mary Magdalene? You know why? Because he designed you that way. In his sovereignty, he designed you with your personality, and he designed you with your passions. And He designed you with your talents and your gifts or the lack of some that you wish you had. He designed you with the experiences that you've had in life. He was sovereign over all those things, good, bad, or indifferent. He was sovereign. And because He has been crafting your life, He intends to use what He has perfectly designed. Do you believe that? He does. He intends to do that. And so, and so, we should realize that God doesn't have kind of first-class Admirals Club, you know, executive platinum kinds of leaders in the church, and then everybody else just flies coach. That's not the way God works. God has a great desire to use everyone toward His purposes. He will use women as much as He will use men. He will use children as well as adults. He will use white-collar people and blue-collar people and fast learners and slow learners. He'll use educated people and uneducated people. He'll use introverts and extroverts and loud people and quiet people and articulate people and bumblers who stumble over their words. And he'll use successful and failure and rich and poor and organized and disorganized and opinionated and carefree and fun people and serious people. He'll use all kinds of people. And what you think is a disability might actually be the exact kind of thing that God intends to use for His purposes. I wish you could be, meet my friend Terry Grigsby. Terry is a remarkable man, but you might not think that if you were to meet him. Terry is uh, hes in poor health, hasn't taken great care of himself, unfortunately. Uh, Terry uh, is not well-educated. And probably the biggest strike against my friend Terry is that he served six years in prison. Terry went to jail for a crime he literally did not commit, but he was paying the price for a wife who had done it, and he was helping her get off, and he took the blame and went to the county jail. And when they were just about to transfer Terry out of county jail to the federal penitentiary, the warden at the county jail learned that Terry knew how to cook. In fact, he was an incredible chef. And so he made sure that Terry was not transferred, and he turned over all of the cooking of the county jail to Terry Grigsby. In fact, eventually turned over all of the acquisition, all the ordering of the food, and all of the budgeting of the kitchen in the county jail to Terry Grigsby. And for six years, Terry cooked, and for six years, the inmates had the best meals they've ever had in their life. Terry was set free about a year ago. And as he began to make his re-entry into society, you can imagine, you can imagine how hard it was for a man to find work and find somebody, find where he would be qualified, where would he fit in. And one day, he tells a story. One day, um, he's driving along I-30, and his cell phone rings. It's a number he doesn't recognize. He answers the phone, and it's one of the vendors that he had done business with while he was in jail. It was a frozen food vendor that was calling Terry and said, Terry. Terry, I have, I have 180,000 pounds of frozen food I need to offload to some food pantries. Can you help me? Terry contacted one of our ministries, borrowed a refrigerated truck, and he and a couple of men went and gathered 180,000 pounds of frozen food and began to distribute it. The next day, he received another call. There was another vendor. They said, we've got 400 400 pounds of dried soups that we'd like to get in people's houses. Terry went and picked it up. He had another vendor contact him and said, "Uh, we have 118,000 pounds of produce, strawberries and grapes and bananas. They're all yours if you can come and get them. And so, Terry has spent the last several months driving back and forth all over, picking up food. And when we met a couple of months ago, I said, Terry, I said, 180 pounds of frozen food and 118,000 pounds of produce and 400 pounds of soup. Terry, as you're distributing these to food pantries, first of all, you got to be tired. And he said, I am. And I said, how many people have you fed? He said, well, Pastor, I really don't like to kind of toot my own horn. He says, but I did the calculation. And last week, he said, all of the food that I picked up and we distributed fed 42,000 people in North Texas. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Well there's a food warehouse one of the one of the largest food networks a, a faith-based organization that heard about what Terry was doing connected with him then they've connected with us they came and met with us as a church and now we're on the edge of about to donate acreage to this to this food Pantry, so that they can build a hundred thousand square foot warehouse right next to our church and become one of the largest distributors of food to the poor in throughout Texas, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. Because of one man, an unhealthy, uneducated ex con, that God says, That's the guy right there. That's the guy I'm going to use. I know He's not the guy you would use, but He's the guy I will use. Left-handers are never left out of God's plans, which brings me to a second principle we learn about Ehud in this story, and it's this, that God often uses our weaknesses for even stronger results. He often uses our weaknesses. The reason he chooses us in our weaknesses is that he often uses our weaknesses to accomplish something that otherwise could not happen. Think about Ehud. I mean, I don't know if we don't know what was exactly wrong with his hand, but I wonder if it was visible and physical so that when people looked at him, they thought he's not a threat. That gave him an inroad right into Eglon's palace. Or maybe because he's a left-handed man and he straps his homemade sword to his right thigh that the Secret Service detail never thought to check his, his, his right leg. Whatever it was, there was something about him in his weakness so that his liability actually became an asset. It actually became an advantage looked at from a different perspective. you ever thought about that? I have. It's called gray hair. Let me explain. Some of you may have not have noticed this morning, but I'm going gray. <laughs> started when I was 26, started when, when I was in seminary. There's a correlation there, and then we had children, and then it just went white overnight. <laughs> and I got to tell you something, here I am, I'm, I'm a guy in my 20s, it, it was growing, going gray so fast and I, and I don't know what was wrong, I never thought to color it. I had a guy look at me one time and said, wow man, you're really gray, you, have you ever thought about coloring it? And I said, we can't be friends anymore. And so, um, so, so, yeah, here I am. I'm 26, 27, 28 years old, and I've got gray hair. And I, I'll be honest with you, I hated it. I hated it. I just thought, ah, oh, this is not good. And then I was hired by a church in South Austin. I worked at First Evangelical Free Church, now Austin Oaks Church. I worked there for 10 years as a college pastor. And in my role there, I became kind of second chair to preaching. I, I would preach 8 to 10 times a year. I'm preaching to a multi-generational congregation. There are people in that congregation that are really old, like 50. (laughs) And and that's what it felt like to me, right? And it was amazing. Here I am, this young buck, barely, I'm still wet behind the ears in seminary and theological truth. But I got hair. Hair. And my hair gave me a perceived authority that was a huge platform for my ministry. You see, the thing that I hated, that I thought was just terrible, that I wished that God would take away, was exactly the thing that God wanted to use to increase my ministry. Do you see that? Reminds me of a young man that used to go to our church down in Austin. His name was Roger, and Roger has uh, cerebral palsy. And uh, every Sunday, he would come in in his wheelchair. A friend would go pick him up and bring Roger to church, and Roger would be sitting just in his wheelchair in the, in the middle aisle, the center aisle, and the worship music would begin. And Roger, because he couldn't control, really, he, had, he didn't have very good control over his hands and arms. I mean, they were just all over the place. And I learned more about freedom in worship from Roger than I did from any sermon or any worship pastor. What would have been perceived in Roger as a liability, an incapacity in the rest of the world became the way, the thing that God would use for much stronger results. So, think about for a moment your yeah, but. Now, I want you to consider serving in our student ministry, or hey, this would be a great place for you to plug in helping with kids, or you know what, you should consider going to the men's retreat, or the women's retreat. There's a short-term mission trip, all of us have, because I've been through it in my life. We have those yeah buts, yeah but. That thing that you think just doesn't work. Perhaps that limitation actually can be exploited for something that's much stronger you're never thinking about. You say, well, I'm too old. I'm too old. I can't plug in. Too old. In ministry, we call that seasoned. There's wisdom and experience you have. The younger ones don't have that. Maybe you say, you know what? I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm not a leader. I think about leaders, these great leaders that talk off the co- I'm an introvert. Guess what? I'll bet you a shiny nickel that the student ministry of this church could use a couple of introverted leaders because there's some introverted junior and senior high school kids that are scared to death of these wackadoodle weirdos that are jumping off the walls and turning their hair blue. They don't know what to think about that, and they're looking for somebody that will communicate in their world and in their language. Or maybe you say, you know what, I'm too opinionated, I'm too strong-willed, I, it gets me into trouble. Yes, maybe it does, and sometimes you just need to stop it. <laughs> but sometimes an opinionated, strong-willed, courageous person is exactly what a little community of Christians needs to just get them off the dime. Because that person will just put it right in the middle of the table. And you go, you know what, I don't like the way you said it, but it is true. And it moves people. Or maybe you say, you know what, we, I, we could never serve in children's ministry. We, we, we don't have kids. Yeah. So what that does mean is you have time. You don't have kids, that means you've got a whole lot of time. And the not having kids that you may have thought was a liability for so much of your life and sad limitation and all that comes with that, perhaps that actually positions you in a way to give a kind of time that somebody else can't give. Perhaps the thing you think is a weakness God might use for stronger results. And so left-handers are never left out of God's purposes, and your weakness can actually be used for stronger results. This leads me to the final and the most important principle of this text, and it's this, that God intends to be the hero of every story. He intends to be the hero of every story. You see, Ehud's inability, his disability leaves no question at the end of this text who accomplished the victory. It leaves no question who it was that gets the glory in this story. In fact, he announces in verse 28 these words. The Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Ehud didn't get finished and go, "Uh uh-huh, I don't know how that translates in Hebrew, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't say, you know, he I when he accomplished the victory, he pointed, he says, You look at me, I can tell you, I, I don't have much going for me. So we have to all conclude God did it. We have to conclude that the victory is God. And the reason is that God has no intention of making heroes out of you and me. Do you know that? He does intend, however, to enfold. Us in his unfolding plan and intends to make Hero a hero of himself. That's, that's why God does what he does. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he's describing the whole work of salvation. He, he says this: He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you called, which when you were called, which should translate into, we weren't nothing. Okay? Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential, and not many of you were from noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. In other words, God, in His sovereignty and in His pleasure, didn't go out and find all the sharpest, greatest, most talented spiritual people and say, come on in. God instead chose to look for humble, marginalized, insignificant, inadequate people and call them into what He was doing for what purpose? Paul says, in verse 28 as he continues, so that there would be no one who could boast before him, that there could be no one who stands before God and go, uh-huh, right? I don't know why I do it like that, but you get, you get the whole idea. Nobody would be able to boast and say to God, I accomplished this by my own hands. Paul reflects the same kind of idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember Paul had this thorn Remember, he talks about the thorn, and he prays three times, God, would you take away this thorn from me? And a lot of people here in this church and in my church, they prayed, God, I have this thorn, I've, I'm insecure, I wish you'd take that away from me. I don't speak very well, I wish you'd take it away from me. I can't remember Scripture, I try to, but I can't, I wish, gosh, I wish I could always remember Scripture, and it just it feels like such a limitation, and I don't feel like I'm very creative, and I don't feel like I'm very organized. We all have our thing that we feel limits us and prevents us from doing all the that God wants us to do, and we pray. And Paul says, I have this thorn, and I pray that God would take it away. But in that passage, God says, Paul, there's a reason I gave you that thorn. Tell me, Lord. God says, I gave it to you to prevent you from becoming conceited so that you would not think I'm all that. He says, what I will do, though I won't take away the thorn, While I may not make you more organized, and I may not make you an eloquent speaker, and I can't erase the past, this is what I will do. My power will be at work in you and will still accomplish all of what I want to accomplish, and at the end of it, you will be glad that Jesus gets lifted up rather than you. That's the whole goal. Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission was one day congratulated by a friend for all the amazing things that Hudson Taylor had done, and Taylor's response is brilliant. He says, it seems to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work, and when at last he found me, he said, he's weak enough he'll do. All God's giants have been weak men, and I would add women. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned Him being with them. They knew that it all depended on Him, and so they're okay being weak because it all relied on God. And if there's any question that this is the way God works, just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says that when God chose to redeem the world, He sent His own Son in human flesh, and this is how Isaiah the prophet describes Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to Him. In other words, you and I would not have looked in the crowd and picked out Jesus to be our Messiah. We wouldn't have done it, but God. God elected to send His Son in human flesh, and it was precisely because of Jesus Christ's weakness of being a human being that He could die for the sins of the world and accomplish salvation for every one of us. And for what purpose? So that the death of the Son, the Father would be glorified. That's what God's doing. He loves our weakness. He loves it. Because it is an opportunity for God to shine. I was in Cuba about a year and a half ago. I was visiting some of our church planters that were there with a ministry that we partner with. And I had been invited to preach a message at a church on one end of the island, and the church was made up almost entirely of people with a disability, a physical or an emotional or mental disability. So, I decided that I would preach God of the left-handers. Why not? It's a perfect text, how God will use anybody. So I gathered my notes and my Bible. We traveled to this church. We walked in as the worship service was getting underway. I met a few people, and it was just such a great thing. And then they sat us on the front row, as they typically do, and, and, uh, so that we could just kind of be there front and center and see what's going on. The worship led by this little band of, of mismatched people was some of the most beautiful worship I've ever been a part of in my life. And then it hit me. The worship leader, a lady who looked like she was maybe 30, 35 years old, lifting her hands in the air, was missing part of her right arm, just a little nub about halfway down her arm where you would have expected the rest of her right hand to be. I panicked, I can't preach this text, how do I preach about the God of left-handers and there was a woman who literally only has her left hand. You know, I'm flipping through trying to rewrite sermons along the way. And in the absence of anything else, I got up to preach. She went and sat on the front row. I'm like, can't you just… Isn't this be a great time to go visit your family? She sits on the front row, and I begin to preach about Ehud, and she lights up. After the message… In the worship service, I had to go meet this remarkable lady. I said, Your worship was God inspired. I am so I am so captured by your heart. What is your name? She says, My name is Hope. I said, Of course it is. Of course it is. The story of Ehud gives us a hope. Hope that none of us are left out of God's plans. Hope that whatever is a weakness in us, that God can use that to accomplish incredible results. So get ready. There are no yabuts yeah buts in the body of Christ. And hope that if you and I will say yes. Lord, I don't know how you're going to use all of this, but I'm in hope that He will use us, just like He did Ehud, to accomplish any of His purposes, and along the way, that God will get the glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the example of this leader-servant who said yes. And I wonder if his I wonder how many times in Ehud's life he might have said no or people might have said no to him or about him because of his disability. I can sure identify with him because every one of us have something that makes us afraid or makes us feel inadequate or makes us feel like we can't contribute. And yet, God, you have proven time and time again that you love to raise up humble people and use them to accomplish your purposes. And God, we would say to you today, okay, Lord, here I am. Would you use me over and over again? And God, if at the end of it I am not the hero of the story, that will be just fine as long as you're lifted up and people are more enamored with you than what I accomplish. Help us to say yes to you, to be used by your purpose. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.